Hello, everybody, and welcome back to a brand new episode of The Casual Criminalist. As always, hi there. I'm your host, Simon. What we do here is I have a script for me in front of me. Right here, can you hear it? It's uh, Charles Manson, the man who ended the 60s. This is the Manson family episode. I was always a little bit hesitant to tackle some of the like bigger crime stories because they've been so covered, whether factually by other true crime podcasts and YouTube shows or uh, fictionally by Quentin Tarantino in uh, that really great movie from last year or 2019 something 2019 i feel it was when i still went to the cinema um but yeah anyway but i thought people were asking people say simon you should cover some of the big guys because we'd like your take on them we'd like your writers take on them and i'm like okay in that case let's do that because also i mean (laughs) from a business perspective they probably get more listens and views so win win this is actually, I believe this is Chris, Chris's first script for Casual Criminalist. <laughs> Round of applause. Welcome, Chris. Welcome to the party, pal. Now I'm going to feel bad because I haven't done that for previous new authors on Casual Criminalist. But uh, welcome, Chris, to the podcast. Charles Manson, the man who ended the 60s. The introduction is finally ending, and we're getting into the script. It's December 1969, the last gasp of the swinging 60s. Bombs are falling on Vietnam, secret wars are being fought in Cambodia and Laos, and Nixon is in the White House. JFK has been assassinated, as of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, and Fred Hampton of the Black Panthers has been murdered by the police. Just a few months prior, the world watched awestruck as NASA astronauts landed on the moon. The prison island of Alcatraz is being held by an armed gang of American Indian Movement AIM members who will end up holding the authorities at bay for the next 18 months as a protest against the forced dispossession of the First Nations peoples across America. It feels like the world has been spinning out of control for a good decade or so, and it's showing no signs of slowing down. The 60s sound intense. I mean, it's like you think of like 2010, 2020, like the last decade to go by, and you're like, yeah, there were some wars, there was some disease, there was some stuff, but nothing crazy. I mean, there was this crazy stuff, but there's not like, uh, there's not Vietnam. There's not the assassination of a president and Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, wild. There's no landing on the moon. The 60s were interesting. Damn. And in Los Angeles, police are wondering what could possibly connect a dead music teacher, a mansion full of brutally murdered Hollywood royalty, and the bloodied corpses of a couple who made it big in the grocery business, savagely butchered in their own home. By the mid-1970s, all would be revealed. Charles Manson, Charlie, to his devotees in what became known as The Family, would rise to prominence as an emblem of the dark side of 60s counterculture. Often called the man who ended the 60s, his crimes, most committed by his brainwashed followers on his behalf, would come to represent a turning point in American history and the end of America's cultural influence. Am I imagining it, or did Charles Manson recently die? I believe, I know this is all about to be covered, I'm absolutely sure, but I feel like he died like last year or a couple of years ago. And wasn't he originally scheduled to be executed in the 70s, but then California adopted the death penalty? And it's like, it's Charles Manson. Couldn't we have just done it after he was killed? I mean, I mean, as we'll find out, he was a dick. The Swinging 60s 
To understand the Manson murders, we need to understand the times in which they were committed. With the appalling destruction of World War II and the subsequent anti-communist panic still, still in living memory, an unusually strong and persistent counterculture had developed, first through the beatnik movement think black leather jackets, heroin, and anti-establishment poetry. Those are three very different things. The beatniks have it all, had it all covered. Like three things. Poetry. Okay. Leather jackets. Okay. And heroin. Oh. Oh, okay. Just throw some heroin in there, shall we? Wow. And then with luminaries like Ken Kesey of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest fame setting up an alternative lifestyle commune in La Honda on the outskirts of San Francisco. Does alternative lifestyle mean what I think it means? I, I think of like swingers. Yeah, baby. <laughs> when I think of alternative lifestyle, is that what we're getting at here? This La Honda commune attracted more than 15,000 counterculture types to nearby Haight-Ashbury, where they experimented with alternative lifestyles, New Age philosophy, and various forms of anarcho-communism, often with the aid of hallucinogens and promiscuous sex. So, maybe? The general attack on traditionalism also took the form of the rejection of class, race, and gender discrimination loosely grouped under the banner of the civil rights movement. The New Left movement, amongst many others, campaigned stridently for African American and Native American rights. Protesters, some armed, took over the campus of Berkeley University and other locations in pursuit of free speech and equal hiring practices. The Million Man March laid bare the brutality of racial segregation, and the Yippies, a political offshoot of the hippies, organized protests and pulled stunts like putting up a pig as a candidate for president of the United States. All over the country, and indeed the world, rebellion, protest, and sometimes violent attempts to overthrow the established order convulsed governments and outraged respectable citizens and Daily Mail readers as they poured over their morning papers. Ah, Chris. I think, well, I, I, I don't know. Sometimes I don't, you know, Chris is a new writer and I don't remember where he's from or if he's told me. But I'm guessing, because of his comments about the Daily Mail there, that he is British. The Daily Mail, I feel, is like, um, I don't know if Fox News would be the equivalent. I feel, I don't know, I know people rag on Fox News, but I don't, is it as bad as the Daily Mail? The Daily Mail is both conservative and extremely trashy at the same time. Um... So maybe it is like Fox News. And somewhere in the middle of all of this, there's Spawn Movie Ranch, a cowboy-themed tourist trap offering pony rides and a look around a real-life movie set and where the blind and aging owner has agreed to let Charlie and his family stay in exchange for labor and running the site. The members of the family, overwhelmingly female and a floating population of between 20 and 25 individuals, sit sprawled on rickety chairs, beanbags, and the floor, eyes glazed from LSD and marijuana, while the short-statured bearded figure of Charles Manson paces up and down, delivering the after-dinner lecture on his psychic connection to John Lennon and the hidden meaning of the song Helter Skelter. Outside, various other members of the family conduct armed patrols of the compound, checking on camouflage installations and chatting quietly about how lucky they are to have found a man who is so clearly the embodiment of the Messiah. It's amazing, like, cult leaders. It's crazy. Like, I think of charismatic people I know, people who just have, like, natural charm, and you're like, you just, you know, people you just like. You're just like, I just like that person, I don't know why. They're just, like, charismatic. But then it's like, could they run a cult? Hell no, they're not that charismatic. Get people to do shit like this? Good luck. So meeting someone like Charles Manson, it must be wild to meet someone who is so persuasive. So persuasive. I guess it's like, um, maybe like politicians. Like, not like, you know, regular politicians. But like, like I hear Bill Clinton. 
is incredibly charismatic like no matter what you know whatever you think of him or whatever he's a charismatic dude like you want to like him um and i think you know high level politicians mega successful politicians and cult leaders <laughs> maybe people no i seen like people who start like big businesses like elon musk and stuff but elon musk's not charismatic apple steve jo- steve jobs wasn't charismatic no not these guys it's politicians and cult leaders interesting where other hate ashbury gurus talked about women's liberation manson spewed medieval misogyny where the lahonda hippies used psychedelics to connect to native spirits and have mumbled conversations about pan-human equality manson would use the same drugs to hammer home a garbled and deluded race theory and where the yippies concocted schemes to bring about a revolution by peaceful electoral means manson and his cultists expressed impatience with the current lack of bloody social collapse and plotted murders to get started and while this all might sound like the absolute opposite of 60s counterculture a sort of counter counterculture it actually wasn't in the same way the extreme left can sometimes be difficult to distinguish from the extreme right possibly the most disturbing thing about manson's ideas is just how seamlessly they fitted into the more extreme facets of the alternative radicalism of the 60s yeah i mean when you go too far left or too far right on either side it's like here be here be monsters you know it's like anyone who is just that far on either side i'm always like I don't know it just seems it seems like a weird place to be like i definitely have political opinions i tend not to share them um but i would say i'm like i'm not extreme in either direction at all it just feels like weird to be so aligned with something and so like another thing you see is people just lockstep in ideas like okay maybe you know i have some left-wing ideals and but then if someone if the the like general left is like yeah this is also a good idea take it on its merit assess it individually don't be like yeah 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 of course i don't know doesn't that seem doesn't that seem logical politics is weird i don't really like it that much like the the whole people the identify people use it to identify themselves which i find strange what we're talking about this isn't relevant at all and just you know it's like dinner like i I feel like these things it's like dinner you know with people don't talk about politics don't talk about religion we sometimes bring up religion but only briefly and politics less isn't there another thing you don't talk about at dinner it's politics religion and there's another classic thing which i don't remember it's probably why i don't get invited to dinner because i'm always bring up that third thing that i don't remember how to win friends and influence people of course someone like charlie isn't formed purely by sociological or cultural factors and there's a solid sprinkling of all the classic ingredients found in the violent antisocial psychopath recipe in his early life and development on november the 12th 1934 a 16 year old runaway called kathleen maddox gave birth to charles mills maddox in cincinnati ohio the identity of the father is unknown shortly after the birth kathleen married william manson and despite the briefness of this union her son charles took his name and become and became charles mills manson by all accounts including manson's own kathleen was not interested in becoming a mother he tells a story of being sold to a cafe waitress for a pitcher of beer his uncle having to search the city for days to recover him after kathleen had simply drunk the beer and left him with the waitress other accounts tell of manson honestly honestly if that's who your mum is you're better off with the person who traded the beer they're probably also not the best because they bought a child for beer um but they're better than the person who gave up the child for beer like objectively 
Other accounts tell of Manson being forced to sleep in his mother's bed even when she was uh, receiving other men for sex and that he once attempted to have sex with her himself for which he was brutalized. The majority of his early childhood, however, was spent bouncing around various relatives, partly because of Kathleen's neglect and partly because of her own criminal activity. These de facto foster parents were also not ideal, his grandmother being a religious fanatic, one of his uncles abusing him for being a feminist, and another committed suicide while Manson was in his care when he found out his property was about to be seized. Oh my god. This is the making of Manson. This is the, you know, it's like, oh look, abused kid. What a surprise. Not, not all abused kids, I'm not saying that, become monsters. But oh my god, is there a correlation in these stories? And the lesson there, as we often come back to, don't abuse your children. Don't abuse your children. It makes it makes monsters. Unsurprisingly, Manson took to crime with a special penchant for stealing cars, and when he wasn't in the neglectful and abuseful bosom of his extended family, he was in reformatories and juvenile detention facilities. He was also an escape artist, and his adolescent life was an endless cycle of absconding from institution, uh, from an institution, stealing, and getting caught and sent back before escaping again. At 17, Charlie drove a stolen car across state lines. Uh-oh. That's going to be his first federal crime. I know that from the movies. If you're doing crimes, don't cross don't don't continue doing the same crime into another state. Isn't there Didn't we have someone in a previous it was either in a movie or a previous casual criminalist they blur where they kidnapped someone and drove them across state lines and that becomes some sort of more major crime and then the FBI got involved rather than the local police and then they were like the FBI were really good compared to the local police and they found them. I don't remember what it was, but I feel like that definitely happened. I mean, it's definitely happened, but I don't remember where we covered it. And he was locked up in federal prison where he'd rack up eight assault charges in a year before being transferred elsewhere. Good lord. He also claims to have suffered intense sexual abuse at this and other institutions. It was here that he took the Carnegie course based on the book How to Win Friends and Influence People, which suggests an interest in manipulating others quite early in his career. Wait, just because you read the book? I've read How to Win Friends and Influence People, like back in the day. It's one of those major self-help books. I don't know, I feel a bit cringe admitting to reading self-help books, but I've definitely read read a few. <laughs> this is one of them. <laughs> Self-help's a bit cringe, isn't it? But it's also good. I mean, there's definitely stuff that I'm like, yeah, that's, that's useful. That's like, you know, helpful in life. I'm sure I don't remember anything about How to Win Friends and Influence People, but I'm sure one of them... Like one of the biggest things I think about like meeting people is everyone always wants to talk about themselves. And if you just let, and it's like a really good thing to do is just listen to other people, just hear other people's story. And it's like, then you're more likely to make friends, <laughs> of course. And here I am. And also I get all my talking out at work. So I'm fairly sure that was in that book. And that is just such a good life skill. And it's also super interesting. It's just a great life tip. But uh, apparently that m- makes me interested in manipulating other que- people. <laughs> Seems a bit harsh. The pe- this period of Charlie's life is covered in even greater detail in a fantastic video on the Peerless Biographic channel. You're goddamn right, it's Peerless. <laughs> Which I'm sure you'd all like to watch once you finish this one. If you don't know, uh, Biographics is another channel that I do on YouTube, which I host. Uh, check it out. After a couple of brief marriages in 1955 and 1958, respectively, the first to a 17-year-old waitress named Rosalie Willis and the second to a prostitute named Leona Stevens, who went by the name Candy, Charlie was given his first long stretch. Seven years for crossing state lines with the intent of prostitution. Wait, what? Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> Hang on. Is that am I interpreting that correctly? So if you're in I don't know American geography, but if you're in California, is Utah no Utah's not next. What's that state? The one with Las Vegas. 
Nevada. That's next to California because I've driven from Las Vegas to Los Angeles on a road trip and I'm barely sure that was a state. So if you're just hanging out in Las Vegas and you're like, I want to do some prostitution, like be a, uh, not a, a, a customer. Is that right? Customer of prostitution? <laughs> or sex work i'm not sure prostitution's not okay to say anymore is it you got to say is it sex work i don't know i don't know look i'm not trying to be offensive but if you drive to los angeles with the intention of sleeping with a sex worker that's a federal crime that can get you seven years in prison is that right that seems pretty mental to be honest uh he also had two sons one by each wife charles manson jr and charles luther manson wait he called both his sons charles after himself that reeks of narcissism my dude whether this arose from lack of imagination or a strong dynastic instinct i suppose we'll never know it just a strong narcissistic instinct maybe during a seven-year stretch in mcneil island penitentiary puget sound charlie didn't sign up for any of the formal academic or trade programs available but nevertheless furthered his own education in biblical ranting steel guitar and scientology really scientology huh manson selmay during this period was one lafayette raymer aka lanier raymer a qualified scientology auditor Raymer reportedly gave Manson over 150 hours of auditing, a set of processes designed to bring about the theta state. That's that thing they do with that weird measuring thing, isn't it? That measures your... Well, I guess it doesn't really measure anything because it's not real, is it? Like, you know, but um, it measures theta? Oh, no, it gets you in a theta state. The meaning of which isn't remotely important. Okay, let's stop exploring that tangent. The important thing is that it's an indoctrination process which delivers the main tenets of Scientology. My wife was almost recruited by Scientology, like back in the way before I met her. She went to, there was something, and it was like a friend of hers or something, and they were like, come to one of our Scientology things, like, like our um, meetings, and there's like, we'll do this test on you. So she had this weird like thing with the, the readings done. And she was like, this is weird and fake. It never went back. <laughs> Good for her. Uh, so it delivers the main tenets of Scientology. Fellow inmates of Manson's, including the bank robber Alvin Creepy Carpus, who taught him how to play steel guitar, reported that Manson was interested in Scientology mainly for the elements which would help him to do anything or be anything. There's also the fact that the church was quite new at this time, and it was recorded in Manson's file as a sign of rehabilitation that he was finding religion of some kind. Rehabilitating him from going to a prostitute in a different state did i really miss something that doesn't seem po that doesn't seem right one of manson's biographers jeff Gwynn, speculated it might also have been the more manipulative techniques of scientology their recruitment and persuasion methods which interested charlie most it is very important to note that the church of scientology has declared repeatedly that manson was never officially a member of the church and that their beliefs had nothing whatsoever to do with the murders and given their propensity to sue i for one believe them yeah i mean it also there are many things that make a charlie manson and it, i mean even though I, <laughs> yeah their propensity to sue i do believe them but i really okay it's religion religion in general is you know it manipulates people into believing things it's what religion is about it's like hey believe in this why well there's these reasons okay or not okay it was during this time that Manson, whose playing didn't really impress his teacher, Carpus, became convinced that his spiritual destiny after leaving prison was to become a world-famous rock star, bigger than the Beatles, whom he came to view as psychic collaborators and professional rivals, as all perfectly sane amateur musicians do. Yeah, honestly, I feel the same way. Like, uh, I, I, like, uh, he's an absolute legend in presentation. David Attenborough. 
It's like, yeah, he's my rival. David Ash. <laughs> Please, facts, boy. It's interesting to note that Charlie asked if he could stay in prison instead of being released. I wonder if the officials involved ever think about how differently things might have turned out if they'd been able to grant him his wish. Why did he want to stay in prison? Didn't he say that he was brutally sexually abused in prison? That doesn't sound like it's like, no, I really want to go. I'm not into this anymore. The Hort Ashbury Messiah. Charlie left prison with the apparent intention of collecting a stable of devotees slash sex workers in San Francisco before heading to LA to snag his recording contract and worldwide rock star fame and success. Haight-Ashbury at the time must have been a bit like first century Jerusalem streets crowded with devotees and apocalyptic prophets proclaiming, uh, uh, declaiming, declaiming? Is declaiming different from proclaiming? their revelations from various street corners and public parks and squares. According to Jeff Gwynn, author of the substantial 2013 opus Manson, The Life and Times of Charlie Manson, of Charles Manson, sorry, he started first by listening. Oh my god, he did read that book. <laughs> Is Manson so... <laughs> Does everyone just read that book and take away that... How about listening to people instead of talking about yourself all the time? <laughs> Gin writes, For days, Charlie drifted from one street guru to the next, memorizing their best lines and putting together his own street rap. The street philosophy Charlie initially spouted was a hybrid cobbled together from Beatles song lyrics, biblical passages, Scientology, and the Dale Carnegie technique of presenting everything dramatically. Wait, I don't remember that. Present everything dramatically? I mean, I guess in a way. <laughs> I subconsciously absorbed that lesson. Because now here we are. That was me being dramatic. You're welcome. He offered nothing really different from the hundreds of other would-be hate gurus. This is this place. Apparently, it's pronounced Hate Ashbury. It's spelled like Hort. Hout. Uh, Hort Ash- Hate Ashbury gurus, with the exception of his presentation. Charlie was a masterful orator. He entertained as well as he alike. Oh, I'm sorry. This is a quote. I totally missed that this was a quote. Where does the quote begin? For days, Charlie drifted from one street guru to the next until... He entertained as well as enlightened. I'm sorry, normally I say quotes to give people credit because especially with a lengthy quote like this and I just realized it was, I'm sorry. Uh, that was all a quote. In the heady counterculture environment of the 60s and armed with drugs, charisma, sales training and cult programmed t- program- programming t- techniques, some mouthful, Manson was able to collect his family with astonishing ease. His similarity to all the other street prophets was not, as one might assume, a weakness. It was a strength. He was able to give the impression of being part of the greater countercultural tide instead of what he really was, a delusional and intensely warped individual, individual out to aggrandize himself at the expense of a system and society he felt had tortured and belittled him. According to court documents, Charlie acquired a VW bus and began traveling around the country with his female followers, young girls and women who were runaways, dropouts, or otherwise disassociated with conventional society. Once he'd collected his core of apostles and moved down to Los Angeles, Manson began mixing with some surprisingly prominent people in the LA music scene. First was Dennis Wilson, drummer for the Beach Boys, who he met through a music teacher acquaintance called Gary Hinman. Manson used a classic bait-and-switch on Dennis, honey-trapping him with two of his female followers and then orchestrating an introduction by essentially acting as a pimp and drug dealer to Dennis and his showbiz friends. Manson was able to get his hooks into Dennis so far that he actually recorded one of his songs and there was some very preliminary talk about Charlie becoming a beach boy. No, there wasn't. Is that true? I feel like I knew the involvement of the beach boy and Manson, beach boys and Manson, 
but I thought they just hung out and that they were musically involved, but I didn't realize that, really? <laughs> he also entered a meeting with record producer Terry Melcher, Doris Day's son, hoping to further his Destiny music career through this association. Of course, none of these plans came to fruition. Whether it was the strangeness of Charlie himself, his weird music, or his erratic, drug-fueled behavior, he was continually frustrated in his attempts to become the next John Lennon. As his connections dried up very much as a result of that same erratic drug fuel behavior, Manson and the family retreated to the Spahn movie ranch, which had been a popular film set during the 40s and 50s, and the place had basically become cult central headquarters, interspersed by several stays at the homes of their remaining friends. It was during these periods of isolation, mostly at Spawn Ranch and beginning in 1968, that Charlie outlined his vision for the future. Described by most who knew him as barely literate, Manson was able to quote large sections of the Bible by rote, being especially fond of the ninth chapter of the Book of Revelation, the one with the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Oh, shit. that's the one you want, huh? He believed that John Lennon and the Beatles were these four horsemen. Holy shit. And he was fixated on their recently released White Album, especially the songs Helter Skelter, which he thought referred to a coming Armageddon, and unsurprisingly Revolution 9, as in Revelation Chapter 9. He believed this Armageddon would take the form of the Blacks, quote, being locked in an apocalyptic war with white people, whom Charlie associated with the Roman Empire and encouraged to fam- uh, the family to refer to as pigs. Oh, uh, wait. He associated white people with the Roman Empire. I assume he's meaning that he they wanted he wanted them to refer to black people as pigs rather than white people that's weirdly worded but it would be weird if pigs is not a positive connotation uh the family would ride the conflict out in a secret golden city underneath death valley there are some gems of details that i don't know about the manson uh the manson family once it was all over they would re-emerge and help the blacks who charlie assumed would be victorious but incapable of self-government to rule the world Wait, what is going on? This is so crazy. I thought he was just racist. Uh, I mean, this is fairly... <laughs> still racist. Still racist. <laughs> I just assumed it was more like classic, classic white supremacist racism, where it's like, yeah, there'll be a war between white and black people, and obviously <laughs> the white people will win because they're white. Ah, uh, You know, classic Aryanism. Um, as with most apocalyptic prophets, there was the somewhat awkward problem of the apocalypse failing to happen. <laughs> For Manson, the most reasonable solution to this was the family getting started themselves in order to show the blacks, as he called them in his more polite moods, how to do it. Okie dokie. This is all very weird. The Murder of Gary Hinman there's quite a lot of dispute surrounding the killing of music teacher Gary Hinman. The problem arises with one of Charlie's henchmen, a certain Bobby Beausoleil. Bobby ha- gave a series of interviews for a Fox special which aired in 2018, outlining what felt to many like a litany of excuses for his actions. Given that other Manson family members corroborate his testimony, there's a tendency to accept his account. On the other hand, a perpetual issue with the Manson family murders is the fact that their testimony is generally inconsistent, sometimes wildly so, which makes it important to take all of it with quite a large pinch of salt. Gary Hinman was a talented musician who played at Carnegie Hall, worked in a music shop during the day, and was also a sought-after teacher for everything from the bongos to the bagpipes. On top of all of this, he'd recently become attracted to a Japanese form of Buddhism and was planning a pilgrimage to Japan and was also running a mescaline factory in the basement of his house. Holy shit. <laughs> it's like, here's a regular dude. He plays all these instruments and he wants to go to Japan and he's a musician. And boom, he also runs a mescaline factory. Right. 
According to all who knew him, Gary was a fantastic guy who allowed his friends and acquaintances to use his house as a sort of drop-in center and free short-term hotel. Bobby, along with family members Susan Atkins and Mary Brunner, had befriended Gary. Bobby had even stayed in the Topanga Canyon home, and Gary had, according to Bobby, slept with both Susan and Mary. Bobby claims Gary had sold him $1,000 worth of mescaline tablets, which he then sold on to other customers. He claimed that these secondary customers were dissatisfied and demanded their money back, so Bobby, Susan, and Mary all went back to the Hinman house to demand a refund. It's important to... <laughs> Isn't, like, being a drug dealer, like, one of those, like, I oh, yeah, got sold... To... You know, if you're buying, like, Coke or whatever to sell to other people with Coke, and they sold you flour... Uh, I mean, unless you're going back with a gun, which wait, maybe they are. I feel like if you're selling, you've got to be, you've got to, you've got to be able to like defend yourself or like attack, because it's not like you'd be like, I want a refund. You're like, no refunds. <laughs> what are you gonna do? Sue me? But I get the feeling because he gets murdered that they probably are going back there with a gun. But then this Gary chap should really have a gun himself or something, or be ready to defend himself, seeing as he's a mescaline dealer. It's important to note that Vince, that in Vincent Bugliosi's book, Helter Skelter, this drug angle isn't mentioned at all. According to Bugliosi, who was the prosecutor who put Manson and his co-accused away, the three of them had gone there on Charlie's orders with the intent to extort inheritance money that they incorrectly believed Hinman had hidden in his house. So whose was the drug angle? Was that the guy who was giving that interview? Okay, maybe. I'm not sure where the drug angle came from then. Yeah, either way. Two different things. That it seems to be one of those stories where there's a lot of different, you know, conflicting accounts and stuff. Anyway. Whatever the truth, Bobby, Susan, and Mary arrived at the Hinman home on the 25th of July, 1969, demanding money. Gary told them that he had none, and Bobby attempted to beat it out of his former friend. When Gary still proved uncooperative, Bobby called in Charlie, who came round with a samurai sword, holy sh which he used to slice up the poor man's face and ear. Here's where the official account diverges from Bobby Beausoleil's. According to reporting at the time, after Manson left, the three family members tortured their hapless victim for several days before finally stabbing him to death. Okay. It just went, I know, we all know it's the Manson murders. It's the Manson family. We know where it's going, and it goes horrible. But if we were going into this completely blind, this is where shit got real. Because before, it was just a weird cult. And they were up to weird stuff, and now it's like they're torturing and murdering, murdering people. Things changed. According to Bobby, they put Garrett. They tried to patch Gary up, and then, under the twin influences of paranoia and Charlie's repeated urgings over the phone, he finally decided that they had no option but to kill him. It's probably worth noting. It's probably worth pointing out here that Bobby's account is chock full of elements which might be considered mitigation, and was quite possibly given with one eye fixed firmly on the parole board. Either way, Bobby Beausoleil, Susan Atkins, and Mary Brunner killed a gentle and well-loved man who had been a good friend to them and used his blood to write political piggy on the walls. They also drew a paw print in an attempt to pin the murder on the Black Panther movement and trigger the race war that Charlie was so sure was coming. The Tate Murders On the night of the 8th of August 1969, Sharon Tate, an actress who was best known for her role in Valley of the Dolls and a handful of schlock horror and comedy pieces, was settled in for an evening with friends. Sharon's husband, film director Roman Polanski, was away in Europe, and she was more than eight months pregnant. Staying in the house with her were hairstylist and close friend Jay Sebring, screenwriter and friend of her husband's Wojtek Frykowski, and his girlfriend, the coffee heiress Abigail Folger. Outside, Manson's right-hand man, Charles Tex Watson, had just driven to the fence line with family members Linda Kasabian, Susan Atkins, and Patricia Krenwinkel after 
the first after first cutting the telephone cables connecting the house. They'd been dispatched by Charlie on instructions to kill everyone they found inside. As they were leaving, Manson had leaned into the car and further explained, You girls know what I mean, something witchy. The four of them, with Tex carrying a length of rope, climbed up an embankment and over the fence to the outer grounds. As they did so, a Rambler motor vehicle driven by 18-year-old Stephen Parent, who'd been visiting the caretaker in the guesthouse, approached the street gate. Tex stepped out in front of the car to stop it. According to Kasabian, Parent said, Please don't hurt me. I won't say anything before Tex shot him multiple times. They sent Kasabian to stand as a lookout near the car and headed to the house where Tex cut a window screen to gain access. Finding Wojciech sleeping on the couch, Tex told him he was the devil and here to do the devil's business and began administering a beating. It seems Atkins, Krenwick, and Watson found the other four occupants of the house in the living room. Kasabian, from her position near the car, says she heard pleading and screams coming from the house before Wojciech Frykowski came running outside, followed by Atkins and Tex. Wojciech fell, got to his feet, and then was stabbed and shot to death by Tex Watson. She then saw Abigail Folger escape the house with Patricia Krenwinkel in pursuit with a knife. The crime scene photos of the killings show that Frykowski had been stabbed 51 times and shot twice, as well as suffering multiple lacerations, apparently from blunt trauma. Abigail Folger was stabbed 28 times. In the living room, Jay Sebring and Sharon Tate had been yoked together with a rope and had been slung from a high ceiling beam. Both Sebring and Tate had been slashed multiple times around the chest, and Sebring had been stabbed seven times and shot once fatally. The ceiling was riddled with bullets, and the coroner's report showed Sharon Tate had been hanged as well as stabbed 16 times. Her unborn child did not survive the attack. As they left, Susan Atkin used Sharon Tate's blood to write the word pig on the front door before all four of them drove back to Spahn Ranch, disposing of their bloody clothing along the way. Yeah, I don't really have anything to add there. It's just uh, a grim part of history that I think we're all fairly familiar with. And let's move on. The Labianca Murders Once they'd arrived back at the ranch, Charlie had debriefed them all and given his opinion that the murders had been too messy. It had been surmised that, along with his helter-skelter drivel, Manson had been looking to make the murders look more like the Hinman murder as a means of taking some of the pressure off Bobby Beausoleil, who was currently under arrest for it. Not so much from loyalty to one of his devoted followers, but he was concerned that Bobby might give him up. Manson told the four family members to keep quiet about their own murders, and get some sleep oh my god don't worry about it just don't tell anyone to go to sleep it's like <laughs> people are psychos after dinner the following day manson gathered members of the family together tex atkins Ken- krenwinkel kasabian leslie van holten and stephen dennis grogan he told them that they were to go out again and show them how to do it they all piled into a car and kasabian drove while manson gave seemingly random directions as they sought another set of murder victims they eventually pulled up outside a house belonging to harold true a man known to some of the family kasabian says that's a quote by the way a man known to some of the family kasabian says she objected to the idea of killing true but manson told her that he was going next door. Like the Cielo Drive house, which Manson knew had previously been home to Terry Melcher, the record producer who had rejected him, it seems that for all his prophetic show, he was just simply hunting in ranges familiar to him. According to Kasabian, Manson and Tex Watson went into the house of a couple called Lino and Rosemary Lebianca. Lino was a hard-working family man who had established himself in the grocery store business before divorcing and meeting the similarly divorced Rosemary. They had married and together had a happy Brady Bunch-style mixed family. Manson and Tex came out of the house a few minutes later, saying they'd tied up a man and a woman 
and sent two of the girls, Leslie Van Holten and Patricia Krenwinkel, back in with Tex. According to Van Holten, Tex Watson stayed with Leno while they took Rosemary to a separate room. It seems that at some point, Leno began to struggle and Tex stabbed him in the neck with a bayonet. This prompted Rosemary to begin screaming and pleading for her life, at which point Van Holten began stabbing her with various implements that she had fetched from the kitchen. The knives bent and the girls yelled for Tex to come and help them, which he did. It's just so crazy how one just the the just it comes back to that like that charisma or like that persuasiveness of one person who and i'm not saying these people aren't bad people as well but the fact that they're so blindly following manson and what he wants them to do and just doing these things with seemingly without question it's just it's just remarkable i mean you see it with these other cult leaders but in this case it just seems so you're not just taking your own life in something you know like jonestown which you know is equally like not it's not equally crazy it's like this is where you're not just taking your own life but they're saying you've got to go out and kill people innocent people it's just crazy uh when rosemary was dead kremwinkle then moved to leno lebianca stabbing him with a toasting fork and carving the words war on his abdomen he then used blood from his victims to write rise and death to pigs on the walls as well as helter skelter oh helter skelter they misspelled it on the refrigerator when rosemary's 16 year old son returned from a vacation the following day he had been meant to be home that night but had pleaded for an extra day staying with friends he found both his mother and stepfather's bodies leno was in the living room with a bloodied pillowcase over his head an electrical cord around his neck and his hands tied together and with a leather thong the coroner counted a total of 27 wounds on his body along with the carving and the knife in his along with the carving and the knife in his neck Krenwinkel had apparently left the fork in his abdomen. Rosemary was found bound and muffled in exactly the same way, her exposed body bearing 41 stab wounds. Arrest and Trial The LA police were initially very confused by the murders, though. To their credit, they don't appear to have taken seriously any of the clumsy attempts to pin them on the Black Panthers. They initially thought the Ladyanka murders might be a copycat of the Tate killings, ironically vindicating Manson's connection. He knew better how to stage a copycat. In the meantime, they raided the Baker Ranch, the family's Death Valley hideaway, for unrelated arson and grand theft charges and placed several of the family in custody. One of these was Susan Atkins, who confided details of the Tate murders to her cellmate Virginia Graham. <laughs> Ah, oh, hippies. <sighs> Uh-oh, someone's breaking the rules. Don't tell other people about your crimes. Don't tell your cellmate about the crimes. We've had episodes of this show where they put police officers in to pretend to be cellmates. And even if they are a real prisoner, yo, it's like if I'm in prison, like just waiting in like uh, police custody or whatever, and it's like, I don't know, what are you in there for? Like stealing a car, robbery, whatever, like bank robbery. And you're like, okay, it's a serious crime. Going to go away for a while. But then someone rolls in and you're like, what are you in here for? And they're like, murder. And I'd be like, okay, okay, now's my chance. Did you do it? Did you do it? Tell me all the details. Tell me all of those details. I'm your friend. We're in this together. And then I'd be like, yo, police, guess what? <laughs> you want to let me off on those robbery charges because I've got a story to tell you. This account soon made its way to the LAPD. Additionally, police had been interviewing members of the Straight Satan's motorcycle gang, having been tipped off they might have information on a similar murder. Straight Satan's member Al Springer told a strange story of Charlie at the Spahn Ranch offering to uh, his pick of any of the 18 or so naked girls kicking around the place. Charlie then went on to brag about the Tate and Labianca murders, providing details which put the police firmly onto Manson's trail. It's weird that telling someone details of your murders would put them on your trail. And the thing is, if it's a fellow criminal, right? 
you might think oh they're a fellow criminal they're less likely to tell on me until they get arrested and they need someone to flip on because <laughs> i mean like i don't know i, I feel like yeah there's the, the the what's the name of this thing the uh the mafia <laughs> big brain they have that like a murder code or whatever where they they shut the fuck up and don't tell anyone because otherwise you know you'll be murdered by your previous mafia clan or whatever but i don't feel like regular criminals have this so much especially if you're not in their gang or whatever you just be like yeah yeah i'll tell on you if i don't have to go to prison of course i don't want to go to prison <laughs> or are criminals more honorable among themselves i don't even know i'd definitely tell <laughs> like, i'm not going to jail if i can like tell you about those murders no after searching both the Spahn and Baker ranches, where a wealth of evidence was found, Manson, Atkins, Van Houten, Krenwinkel, and Watson were all indicted for murder. The trial was an absolute circus. The state chose Vincent Bugliosi, a veteran lawyer who'd secured convictions in 103 of 104 cases, as the chief prosecutor. If you're in court and they put that guy on you, and he's accepted it, it's like, you are, <laughs> you're screwed. Plead it out, plead it out. Manson's lawyer was a defense attorney famous for his disruptive tactics, Irving Kanarak. Early in the discovery process, the state had tried to turn Susan Atkins, who had initially agreed to testify in exchange for a guarantee the death penalty wouldn't be sought, but she later recanted, presumably threatened by Charlie. Eventually, Linda Kasabian was granted immunity in exchange for her testimony. Oh my god, that's a better deal. It's like, what's on the table? Well, we won't execute you. Okay, yeah, okay, that sounds like a good deal. Can we do, how about immunity? <laughs> Can we negotiate that instead? That sounds better than just not death. Uh, famously, when Linda Kasabian was called as a prosecution witness, Kanarak immediately attempted to have her excluded on the basis of insanity. Manson turned up uh, to his first day in court with a diagonal cross carved into his forehead saying, I've exed myself from your world. The next day, the court was filled with members of the family, many of whom had carved the same cross into their own foreheads. I thought he had like a Nazi swastika on his forehead. Didn't he have like a, a swastika carved there? Or something? Not just a cross? Manson's followers were so disruptive, they were eventually ejected prematurely from the courtroom, and they held constant vigils outside, where the media, captivated by this large group of young females, gave them enormous amounts of attention, of coverage. Uh, the trial was appropriately outsized as well. The jury's sequestration, sequestration, Sequestered jury, okay? <laughs> Sequestration of 225 days turned out to be the longest ever up until that time. Linda Kasabian remained on the stand for a total of 18 days, 11 testifying and 7 being cross-examined by Kanarak. Kanarak devoted quite a lot of effort to painting her as a space cadet, incapable of remembering or communicating reliably. What is that painting her as a space cadet? What does that mean? What's a space cadet? Like someone who's insane? When she admitted to having taken LSD on more than 50 occasions, he fired back asking her to describe what happened on trip 23. <laughs> How would you on earth would you remember this? Despite this, Kasabian, who was the only one of the five to have surrendered voluntarily to police, proved to be a lucid and credible witness. The prosecutor Bugliosi wrote in his book that he knew he was walking uh, something of a tightrope. Given Manson hadn't actually committed any of the murders, he was in the double bind of having to simultaneously prove the insane conspiracy had brainwashed the family uh with and without actually risking manson getting off on an insanity defense he brilliantly pursued a strategy of casting helter skelter and the rest of his crazy pseudo philosophy as a fantasy which manson used to control his followers to compel them to do his bidding grant sexual favors at his commands and ultimately commit murder yeah that's what he did and when you it's, it's really brilliantly laid out there by the lawyer like just how perfectly that lawyer just described what exactly happened 
and that's a brilliant stra- legal strategy to pursue. No wonder he wins all the time. After a mammoth six months, on January the 25th, 1971, the jury found Krenwinkel, Atkins, Van Holten, and Manson guilty on all charges. Two months later, after a hearing on the impact of the crimes, they were all sentenced to death. Tex Watson, whose extradition had been delayed due to Texas politics at the time, was found guilty and sentenced to death at a separate trial that same year. In 1972, however, a California Supreme Court decision abolishing the state's death penalty meant that all five of them had their sentences commuted to life in prison. Dismembered Appendices All three of the female family members have expressed remorse for their crimes, and it should be remembered how young, drug-addled, and subject to Charlie they were at the time. Susan Atkins died of brain cancer in 2009, but both Leslie Van Houten and Patricia Krenwinkel have been model prisoners and have devoted their time to charity work while in prison. Despite this, they have repeatedly been denied parole. Van Houten was last approved for parole in 2021, but as on multiple occasions in the past, it's expected that the governor will veto her release. Patricia Krenwinkel's next parole application is due for May 2022. While in prison, Charlie Tex Watson converted to Christianity, became an ordained minister, married and had four children courtesy of conjugal visits, divorced and remains in prison to this day. He too has expressed remorse. Remorse. That's incredible. He had four children and became a minister while in prison. That's crazy. I didn't. Even, I knew conjugal visits were a thing in some places, but that's pretty crazy. Wow. On September the fifth, nineteen seventy-five, Lynette Frome, Manson's second-ever recruit into the family, attempted to assassinate President Gerald Ford. Oh, I forgot about this. That's right. They were a Manson person with an M nineteen eleven Colt forty-five pistol as an in, as an act of environmentalist protest. The attempt failed because Frome was unaware the slide on an automatic pistol needs to be pulled back in order to chamber around. Ah! She spent 34 years in prison and was released in 2009. That's amazing. <laughs> how do you not practice with the gun before you try and assassinate a president? And how do you get so remarkably close to being able to do that? The Manson cachet never seems to have gone away with multiple reference to him, the family, and the killings appearing in popular culture. Singer Marilyn Manson, Simpsons characters, the Van Houten family, and rock band Kasabian are just a few examples. Why would... Like, I was thinking about Kasabian, the band. Da-da-da-da-da... No, that, that's not them. Na-na-na-na, something like that. They have songs. Um, And I was thinking, surely that's, that's not after that Kasabian. And it is? Why? That's so weird. Don't do that. In addition to this, almost all imprisoned members of the family are published, have contributed to multiple documentaries, movies, podcasts, and other media, and have never really lost the celebrity status they attained through the murders, which must be lovely for the families of the victims. According to multiple news outlets, a young woman named Afton Elaine Burton attempted to marry Manson in order to gain custody of his body and display it as a tourist attraction. These reports are difficult to verify, but it's known that a marriage license was obtained and Afton spent nine years visiting Manson in prison. On Manson's death from colon cancer in 2017, okay, so, oh, wow, it's five years ago already. Uh, three separate claimants for his body fought for an unending and unedifying battle for custody of the corpse, including his grandson, one of his pen pals, and one of his friends. They eventually gave it to his grandson, but it's curiously satisfying in some ways that Charles Manson's death was attended with such carnival sideshow indignity. Uh, yeah, maybe. This has been a dark episode and a well-trodden episode of The Casual Criminalist. I hope you enjoyed our coverage, even though it's well-trodden. You heard it before. I hope we added something new to the story today. I learned details that I didn't know about, and I'm familiar with this story. Uh, if you liked it and you're watching, there's a like button below. There's a comment section if you want to say hi. Subscribe as well. If you're watching as a podcast, uh, reviews really do help get this show in front of more people. I say it every time. And if you've been thinking I should do that, I should do that. 
Now's the time. Go and do it. Leave me a nice review. It would be wonderful. And I'll see you next time.